The Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z here, author of the Cannabis Business Book. And you're listening to the Cannabis Business Coach Podcast, where I chat with and coach the highest performing entrepreneurs in the cannabis industry. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z here. And on today's episode of the Cannabis Business Coach Podcast, I'm joined by my dear friend, Kristen Jordan, who we go back for several years now in the New York scene. Kristen is an attorney by trade or background or whatever, I, whatever the right word is. But to, to say that you're just an attorney would be a massive understatement. You've done so much in the industry on the advocacy side, on the entrepreneurial side of things. And and you've really spanned from the grassroots all the way to most recently to you know what I'll call corporate cannabis with a large MSO being Acreage Holdings where you're currently working. And so I'm excited to share the breadth of perspective and insight that you have, Kristen. And I'm just so delighted to see you and to catch up. So thank you for, for joining me. And, and if you wouldn't mind, can you please just do a little more of a professional intro, if you will. Sure. Mike, thanks so much for having me. It's really exciting to be on with you. Uh, as you mentioned, we go back a long time. I, I think you're one of the first folks that I met in this industry, or the community at least. And, uh, you know, I've, I think that uh, we've always supported one another and, and had a close friendship. So I really appreciate what you're doing and appreciate this opportunity to talk with you. Uh, so in terms of my, my career and my professional um, uh, interest in this space, um, traditionally I am a real estate attorney. Uh, I've been practicing, I think this is my 23rd year in practice and always uh, been in Manhattan um, in New York City uh, and either working for law firms or managing uh, real estate portfolios for uh, retailers or um, uh, large-scale corporate real estate uh, departments in, in large companies. Um, and gosh, I think it was I think my, my normal routine is to say five years ago, but I think it's like six or seven years ago now uh, is when I made the commitment to come into the cannabis space. And at the time, uh, we had just passed our medical, um, uh, the, the Compassionate Care Act in New York. And so I think it must have been 2015, uh, probably the summer when I became aware of the medical program. And I, I believe I, I probably attended my first high NY event sometime around then. And uh, realized that the you know this opportunity was coming, and uh, you know presented a, a nascent industry for which uh, not only was I a, a quiet consumer, but also somebody who uh, believed in in um, using this industry as a way to to uh, provide generational wealth to communities that have been harmed by the war on drugs. Um, and so back then, gosh, I thought that I would be practicing and I used to uh, represent the hospitality industry, uh, restaurants and bars uh, in obtaining liquor licenses. And in 2015, uh, we had the benefit of seeing uh, a couple of programs get established in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, specifically, I'm thinking of Oregon, where the medical program rolled up into uh, the liquor authority. So we had, you know, thoughts that um, that potentially could 
uh, also look the same. Um, and those applications looked very much like traditional liquor license applications. So because I had that, that expertise um, uh, just on the traditional uh, hospitality side, uh, that's what I thought I would be doing. Um, but fast forward several years later and I'm not doing that at all because we don't have a, a license program. As you know, the first round of licenses went out uh, applications were submitted and we've never had another round of applications so that really was not a viable opportunity for me. From that uh, I had the good fortune of meeting a number of different people uh, in the New York City community um, and you know just a, a wonderful mix of young and old and, and professionals and consumers and patients and uh, all kinds of folks and uh, gosh I think um, Shortly after probably coming to a high and why event, um, we started hosting uh, some events at my law firm. Um, and uh, the goal for which was just to really, you know, get folks excited about some of the different opportunities that we're, we were seeing happening out west. And, you know, it's funny, we look, I look back now at some of our speakers who are willing to travel on their own dime and come and speak to a, a small room of 50 people and eat some Jamaican jerk chicken with us uh, and discuss their business endeavors. And today, they're large-scale companies. I mean, I'm thinking specifically of uh, Bob Aschino and uh, The Incredibles. Uh, everybody knows The Incredibles. And back then, uh, you know, it was a tiny little upstart. So it's really incredible to see, you know, how, how the uh, industry's evolved and how some small operators uh, specifically in Pacific Northwest and Colorado have uh, expanded their and grown their their businesses. Uh, and um, oh, then uh, of course uh, I helped to found uh, the Cannabis Cultural Association, a nonprofit organization that uh, was intended to provide tools and resources to communities of color to uh, allow them to participate in uh, the legal uh, legal market. Um, it was always very important to me, and I know it's important to you to, that. Uh, you know, folks who have been participating in the legacy market uh, up until now, uh, you know, really have real opportunities to uh, make a living and to, to um, you know, uh, transition into the regulated market. Um, and we, we, you know, it's so important for New Yorkers to recognize that uh, you know, for so long, these entrepreneurs have been working on the down low, providing us medicine and, and wellness, you know, at their own personal cost. Um, and it's time that we acknowledge that and transition those folks into a regulated market. Um, and uh, gosh, after CCA, I got involved in industrial hemp, uh, lost a couple of, of my bank accounts along the way uh, because of the, the ridiculousness around uh, banking and uh, worked at a couple of law firms. And now I find myself here at Acreage, which is uh, fascinating. Um, it, uh, really is the first time that my traditional skill set of managing real estate portfolios matches up with where uh, the industry's at in terms of hiring talent. Um, I, never, I never thought that this was really gonna be an opportunity for me. I had always thought that potentially I would you know, do something on the activist front, uh, be it uh, around diversity inclusion or something along those lines. But uh, it's really been um, very eye-opening uh, to not only lend my skill set to the industry, but also to see, you know, how the industry is starting to mature and to become, you know, a much more sophisticated industry. Yeah, so that's kind of where where I uh, how I got to where I'm at today. Amazing, and as as I said, you know, really a diverse background of experiences in cannabis, from getting into it without 
you know, having an idea of what you thought you were going to be working on and then having that evolve, forming a nonprofit, shout out to the CCA, love the CCA, all the great work they, they do. And then working at cannabis law firms and now ending up at Acreage Holdings, one of the big multi-state operators. Um, you know, you've really have run the gamut and I'm curious to take a step back, like how or why did you decide to even get involved in cannabis in the first place? Mm. Well, uh, let's see, I guess that was in 2015 and I was reading about the, the medical cannabis program. And at the time, um, let's see, I think I was, I had just turned 41, 42, something along those lines. And uh, I was ready to start thinking about my own cannabis consumption um, and to really examine what that looked like. And so for, for so long, I had uh, thought that uh, my consumption was problematic, um, you know, as a, as a woman and as a, somebody in New York, as an attorney, uh, consumption hadn't been something that I had shared in, in many of uh, my professional settings. And in my social circles, you know, a lot of my friends were getting pregnant and having families. And I found that uh, I was spending a lot of uh, time socializing in garages with husbands. And I, I think with the, um, with the knowledge of the medical program coming on board and then seeing what was happening out West, I just felt like it would be an easy way for me to transition uh, publicly about my own personal consumption. And quite honestly, um, I did a lot of, uh, well, and I continue to do, I'm sure uh, you're the same way. I do a lot of reading around cannabis. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many newsletters I subscribe to and, and uh, you know, how many different um, um, articles I read every day, uh, not only on the industry, but also on the medicine. Um, you know, one of the most influential books for me was uh, The Cannabis Manifesto by Steve D'Angelo. I'm sure everybody has read that. And if they haven't, um, I, I highly recommend it. And for me, that was the first time that I really thought about my own cannabis consumption as wellness. I'd never really thought about that as a term. It was really clear to me that, you know, many folks uh, receive medicinal benefits, but I really hadn't thought about my consumption as medicinal uh, because I'm not epileptic. I didn't have any severe uh, symptoms or conditions that I was treating myself with. Um, and, you know, to, to consider myself medicinal, I wasn't, I, I wasn't uh, convinced. I hadn't convinced myself. And this idea of wellness really resonated with me. And the way that Steve introduced it in his book uh, just made a whole lot of sense to me. Um, you know, it's the same plant. And regardless of how you tax it or consume it, uh, I truly believe that all consumption is some form of wellness. Um, for the, the consumer. So for me, it was just, it was the right time. Um, attitudes and, and people had changed, opinions had changed. And, and quite honestly, I was, I was older now and, you know, um, just more comfortable in my own skin and comfortable in, in just claiming who I am and, uh, and owning that. So, so it sounds like a big part of it for you was really your personal connection to the plant yes. and the evolution of that and just wanting to to be involved in the industry. Awesome. That's right. And I, I will second that 
you know, Steve D'Angelo's book, The Cannabis Manifesto, is a must read if you want to be in the industry. And, and even if you don't, it's just a great source of cannabis education. And I will also recommend the Cannabis Business Book. If you want to be in the industry, I've done a lot of good work to get you advice from 50 industry insiders and my years of experience. So check the, both of those out on amazon.com and add them to your cannabis library today. Kristen, I want to ask you, given that you've done so many great things in the cannabis space and there's, there's stuff that you, we, we kind of even skipped over, you know, like, like your events newsletter and some of the events that you've produced here in New York. Um, but I'm just curious, what about Kristen Jordan has allowed her to succeed and thrive in this industry, which is a tough industry. So I'm curious, what's your highest power? Yeah. Uh, so when you sent me the questions, uh, it's funny. Um, the question is specifically, what's your superpower? And I always joke that my superpower is that uh, you can tell me whatever time you need me to wake up and I can set an internal alarm clock. So that, that's the answer to that question. I have a superpower in that I'm, I'm able to wake myself up at any given time. But in terms of the industry, I think the thing that sets me apart and that uh, makes me a little bit unique is that I'm always somebody who is uh, looking at what's missing. And, and for me, it's, you know, what's, what am I looking for? Um, and uh, then I pound my, my chest a little bit and complain that it's not here. And then I figure out, oh, it's a new industry. If we want something to happen, we have to do it ourselves. So uh, a couple of years ago, when I was trying to uh, make, a, make a practice out of um, uh, representing uh, startup clients in the space and, and was not successful because we don't have a program, uh, I noticed that uh, you know, there were a number of events happening all over the place, conferences, uh, speaking engagements. And uh, back in 2015, 2016, for the most part, uh, most of the speakers looked like you. And most of the speakers came from the West Coast. And I always felt, and still to this day, feel very strongly that the, the East Coast and New York and the tri-state area specifically, our cannabis program is going to look different. Uh, we live differently. We, our composition is different. Our topography is different. Our geography is different. The way that we interact with the plant is different. Um, you know, the way that we have purchased on the legacy market is different from anywhere else. And, you know, I think we can take best practices from other places in the country and we have the benefit of seeing, you know, successes and failures, but we are going to be unique. And so for me, it was really important to not only find um, the experts and the talent uh, locally, and not only because we didn't have any money to bring folks here, but also because I, we just needed to hear more voices that were associated with our community who understood, you know, that uh, uh, there are a lot of folks who have to have to think about um, off-site consumption. Uh, you know, we don't live like folks in Denver. We live on top of each other, and subsidized housing is everywhere. And, um, like, I'm in the Upper West Side. I know you're in Brooklyn, and every place smells like weed, but police are only stationed in certain areas. Um, and so those sorts of things are, are things that uh, we as a cannabis community needed to address. Um, so getting back to, you know, what makes me unique, it's that, you know, the, the Cannabis Culture Association really came from this idea that there wasn't anything like this on the East Coast quite yet. 
Um, we've got uh, you know, some great examples of some folks that are uh, doing some really great work in other places, um, uh, specifically uh, Nina Parks and Amber Center with Supernova Women who you know, are looking to transition women who are in the legacy market and they're doing some great things in Oakland. Uh, we can look at uh, you know, other large scale advocacy groups that are doing very specific policy um, but there was no group in New York that was really looking to support in in communities of uh, that folks live in, right? Like, so, it, you know, a lot of our meetings happened in Manhattan because we had free office space, but it was also important to us to make sure that we did some events in Bed-Stuy. Um, and uh, I think you came to our, our startup workshop, workshop there and supported that effort. Um, and so it was always important for us to make sure that we were bringing these things back to the communities that uh, that could benefit from that. And also, you know, frankly, finding those community members who were already doing this work. There was no reason for us to, to reinvent the wheel when there were already folks that, you know, were, were doing this. We just wanted to bring other tools and resources like the CPAs who understood, uh, you know, the uh, 280E implications and some very intricate stuff around uh, the cannabis industry specifically. Um, and you know, we also wanted to make sure that folks understood, and this is always something that uh, puzzles me as, as an attorney, is you know, when I was working in law firms, I would get calls all day, every day, uh, asking, how do I grow it? How do I sell it? And my next question is always, are you a farmer? Are you a retailer? So what makes you think that you, you should be buying it or, or you should be growing it or selling it? You know, I always encourage folks to think about what they are already doing and what resources they have around them. Because uh, Mike, as, as we always talk about, uh, you know, for the gold rush, as an example, it was the guy selling the picks and the shovels who really made all the money, not the folks who were panning for gold. Same with uh, alcohol prohibition. Joe Kennedy made a fortune on wine casks and liquor casks, not the actual liquor. And especially in, for communities of color, there's no reason to touch the plant if you don't have to. It puts you in harm's way. It puts you in the crosshairs of frankly, a government that uh, is still trying to figure out how to work with communities of color. Um, so ancillary businesses and uh, supporting businesses, service industries, uh, I think are really where communities of color should really think, think about um, getting involved in. And those are things that can happen prior to legalization. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I, I, the answer I heard there, which I love, I want to highlight for a second, because so many people ask me, how do I get started? How do I get into the industry? How do I find a job? Where do I invest? Blah, blah, blah. And I always tell them exactly kind of what you just said is take your existing skill set and figure out how to be of service or of value in cannabis. And the question that you ask, which I love, because to me, this is like the question to create innovation is what's missing. You know, you have to look around and see what isn't happening or what's right. not going on, what, what's missing and, and that you actually want and that other people actually want. And that's gonna be the, the place where innovation actually happens as opposed to, you know, like all these other folks, how do I start growing? How do I start retailing? There's plenty of growers, there's plenty of retailers. And unless you really know what you're doing there, you know, it's not a great place to go and try and compete and, and run a right. cannabis business. So I completely agree with you that ancillary, and I've said this for years as well, is you know, 
that's a much more digestible entry point, especially if you don't have like really deep pockets or, or a great background in entrepreneurship. You know, why don't you start a little smaller, slower uh, on the ancillary side? And where, quite frankly, you're not as limited by, you know, the state by state regulations and you can actually scale a business and, and there's a lot more upside potentially. So I yes. completely agree with you on pretty much everything you said. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's why so, we're friends, Mike. <laughs> exactly, exactly. High minds think alike. <laughs> so Kristen, I want to ask you, what's it like being you these days, working for Acreage, and especially given you know, the quarantine and pandemic and all that, I know prior to that, you were on a plane like a couple of times a week going here, there, and everywhere. I imagine that's not the case anymore. And, and so I'm just curious, you know, what's it like working at a big MSO and especially in, in times of COVID? Well, I think it's no secret that um, uh, many MSOs, ours included, uh, that are publicly traded, uh, it is not a great time for us, uh, even pre-COVID. Uh, access to capital uh, has essentially dr uh, dried up uh, under COVID, uh, but we had, you know, some some supply chain issues and other things, uh, you know, uh, because of 280E and prohibition uh, that were standing in our way. Um, and, you know, the, the requirement to be vertically integrated in many states is also a huge hurdle for MSOs to, to have to deal with. Um, so, to your question, what is my everyday? Um, gosh, so uh, I started with Acreage in November, and uh, to your point, I was on a plane, I think, gosh, every, it seemed like every week. Um, I have some beautiful away luggage that is sitting in a closet now, so uh, I've mastered my travel game, I'm, um, but uh, I miss it. I do miss um, the idea of, uh, you know, uh, uh, growing in the business and looking at property and, and adding my talent and expertise there. Um, uh, we were chasing some licenses and, and actually, uh, 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 sorry, I have to hold on that announcement. Uh, I'm just trying to figure out if I can share with you something, uh, but uh, tomorrow, unfortunately. Uh, so yeah, that was, um, it was, it was fascinating to see, you know, there were a lot of states that were coming online fast and furious. Uh, and we were making assessments as to whether or not to make plays there. Um, but uh, then COVID hit and everything went sideways. And you and I are both here in, in New York City. Uh, I'm in the Upper West Side. And a lot of my colleagues, uh, once we realized that we weren't going back to the office, uh, left the city. And so I think I'm one of very few people who are actually still in the city. I'm cleaning out my office tomorrow, actually. Um, and so it's been it's been really interesting because we are pretty remote, um, and I think New York. Uh, I don't know about your experience, but it's been very unique to speak to folks about other experiences. Uh, I'll say this: uh, you know, in some parts of the company, country, it doesn't feel like there was much impact. Um, but you know, I had sirens every day. Uh, we had friends who died. Uh, frankly, families who were affected multiple times, um, specifically in Queens, uh, and specifically uh, brown and black folks. Um, so uh, it's been super challenging to not only be in the heart of uh, you know, COVID impact and trying to keep ourselves safe and you know, not knowing exactly what to do in terms of protecting ourselves and what's appropriate and 
you know, how to, how to interact with the world, grocery shop, all that stuff. Um, but uh, then, of course, you know, we dealt with uh, the murder of George Floyd. And, you know, we talked about this real briefly before the call that, you know, this is a really unique time for cannabis. And there's so much intersectionality around the industry and impacted people um, that I think it's, uh, it's really challenging for the industry to figure out not only how to operate, but how to address a lot of these issues that are being thrown at the industry. And I, I, don't, I don't have any magic to that. And certainly that, that, that's not my role and position. And I'm grateful for that uh, because it's, it's been challenging for me personally uh, as somebody who is not black, um, and, but is a person of color and an immigrant uh, to understand uh, not only how to be an ally and to support, uh, but also to help uh, navigate this space with my colleagues and to, to you know, be, um, uh, what's the word? I, uh, I read something recently about um, the idea of being an accomplice versus an ally. And I think that to me rings so true is that, you know, one thing to, is to be an ally and to, to support movements and to support causes, but to be an accomplice is something else entirely. And to me, that means, you know, putting yourself on the line and sitting in discomfort, um, not, not always knowing how to navigate this space as a non-impacted person. Um, but Mike, I, you know, my, I am an adopted person. The, my siblings are all adopted people as well. I have a transgender nephew uh, who is, uh, uh, whose father is Puerto Rican and whose mother is uh, half black and half white, uh, my sister. And, you know, we're all trying to figure out how to support, you know, folks who come into conflict on a regular basis and to face, face discrimination regularly. So it's been really interesting. And um, I think from almost a historical perspective, you know, I went to University of Richmond in law school for law school. And I think it's fascinating to see how they're addressing statues and the Confederate flag in, uh, in those areas. I mean, I remember, you know, I grew up in Syracuse, New York, and I remember going to Richmond for law school and, you know, having a drink with some colleagues and realizing that they had completely different textbooks uh, growing up about, you know, the Civil War and the ramifications around it. And it just, uh, it was really eye-opening to see how uh, our education really um, was so dramatically different and influenced the way that we thought. And this was back in, you know, the mid-90s when there wasn't as much race conflict that was, you know, front and center in, in um, you know, uh, in, in those sort of areas. Two things that come to mind for me. One is, you know, you mentioned the experience of being in New York and realizing that a lot of people have a very different experience. And I have, you know, a, a moment that stands out to me is it must have been in April when things were pretty bad here in New York. And I was speaking to someone in Colorado and you know they were like do you actually know anyone who's even gotten covid and i was like i was like everyone i know knows someone who's died from covid and it but that you know to me it was so it was shocking that there were folks out there who were having you know his experience because they're out in a less dense place where it hadn't really been a thing yet and I was just like, wait, what? Are you for real? So I remember, I remember that quite well. Um, and you know, I think 
it's really interesting. I think it, it's connected to all of the the other stuff with the you know the racial tensions and the injustice and everything. Where you know we're so isolated in 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 some ways from other people's experiences or people with different experiences that it's until you really are faced with it it's hard to to even know that that's real right and i think that's a lot of that is part of the misunderstanding and struggle that's going on in this country where so many people you know just don't understand that an experience other than their own is actually real and that that even exists. And, yeah. and you know, one thing that I, I think is really unique and interesting about cannabis is obviously as, as you and I know, you know, cannabis is an intersectional issue and you can't separate cannabis prohibition from institutional racism. And, you know, if you look at cannabis policy, you know, one of the things that led me to be an activist in cannabis was when I learned the history and how cannabis was being used as an excuse to basically harm black and brown people and to incarcerate them and to strip them of their civil liberties and also their basic human rights and human freedom. And what I think is really unique about our industry and our community is that it's kind of this double-edged sword where we're all aware of that stuff, or not all of us, but most people in this industry are aware and care. And even though we don't have the answers, right? I'm not gonna pretend like I have the answers, certainly not. And I don't think anyone really does, but at least I, I would say we're disproportionately the people in this community and industry trying. And we're, we're aware and we're out there doing the, the personal work we have to do and trying to do the work, the community work of, making things right and trying to be an accomplice as opposed to just an ally. And on the flip side, I think because it's cannabis, and I think this is true for cannabis across the board, I think we're held to a higher degree of scrutiny than any other industry. Because I feel like if we were talking to you know, a group of finance professionals or even medical professionals or any other kind of mainstream industry, I wonder if this issue is as big of an issue or, is it, or comes up as frequently as it does in cannabis. And if, if there's as much, I guess what I'll say like maybe internal accountability, because I feel like in our industry, folks really try to make an effort to, you know, call people out or in or, or, you know, just try to at least move things in the right direction. And, I suspect that that's not the case in most other industries yet. So what, what occurs to right, me is right. that, you know, again, this is my bias, that cannabis is at the forefront of innovation. And, you know, even on, on non-business issues, um, I, I think this community gives me hope that other folks and in other industries will eventually take up some of these issues in a more serious way. Um, and at the same time, you know, we chatted about this a little earlier that there is always the fear of, you know, optical allyship and people just kind of checking the box or, or doing, taking one step and then saying, oh, okay, I did the work and it's done. When in reality, this is going to be a, a lifelong battle 
you know, and it's going to take a long time to really undo all the, all the racism that's baked into America on the institutional foundational level. So I don't know. Yeah. I worry though, Mike, sometimes that, um, you know, I, I think for my sanity for the last couple of months, like I have defriended a number of folks on Facebook. Uh, I think my tolerance level for opposition uh, is just not there anymore. I don't engage folks uh, with uh, different viewpoints anymore because it's just a, it's folks are so polarized now. There's no there's no amount of convincing that's going to happen on Facebook uh, one way or the other, and all it does is just you know ruin your day. Uh, so I don't engage in that anymore, and I simply just uh, you know, defriend, and I think that's that's becoming a thing. But I wonder if you and I are sort of in a um, a little bit of an echo chamber in that we're you know hearing what we want to hear, and we talk to people who we want to talk to. Um, and I say that specifically because I'm thinking about I was looking scrolling scrolling through Instagram the other day, and I saw a post uh, about a mutual friend of ours who was highlighted for uh, some. Uh, inclusivity work that she's doing um, in one of the major publications and I was appalled by the comments on there and I was you know no one who was familiar to me um, but it just it was a gut punch to remind me that this is a huge industry and you know like like many other vices or whatever you want to call medicines or, or wellness attributes you know uh, there is no discrimination in terms of who the consumer and the wellness uh, users are and you know, I, I was reminded that you know Roger Stone was spoke at an event um, a couple of years ago for which I helped to boycott. Um, and you know, uh, those differing viewpoints are alive and well in our in our ecosystem, uh, for good or for bad. I think uh, they they help to remind us um, that the fight's not over and that we need to continue to be accomplices for uh, you know for the benefit of of those other folks who are uh, on the front lines and, and who are brown and black, who are now starting to get some attention and, and it's incumbent on us to, to you know, stand up and make sure that they uh, are protected. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I, it was really a tricky moment for me because I, I was like laying on this couch right back here, just on Instagram randomly. And I saw this, and I went and I checked out the comments and, and I was just, first of all, shocked because it was clearly like, so, I, I mean, to me, the only word that I can adequately use here is ignorant. You know, it was clearly people who didn't really, you know, it didn't seem like they actually read the article or yeah. anything that, that, you know, had any relevant data and instead they were just the responses were just so angry and you know just so critical of our friend who does great work you know who's been a pioneer and a leader and you know in my judgment is really courageous and innovative and consistent which you know it's not every day you get that combination of of, of characteristics in anyone and so well, I, I was personally, I was like, well, what do I do here? You yeah. know, and I, I commented I'm, and I, I did, I was like, so kind of the word verklempt, <laughs> you know, I, I just didn't know what to do. I, 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 Cause I said, okay, I can comment here and say, Hey, you, 
ignorant bullies. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, this person is great and she does good work. And I did, I did say something to that effect. And then I couldn't help but feel like, does that matter? Does my voice here actually matter? Am I going to make a difference? And, you know, it kind of goes back to what you said about like, you know, kind of unfriending these, these people where there's so many people that just don't even care about what the truth is and they yeah. just want to be right. And they're not, you know, they're not interested. This is why we, I, I like to say we live in the world of fake news because people don't even care what's true. They just want right. to feel like they're right and validated. And, you know, it was, it was a good reminder that there's still a ton of work to do and even in cannabis. And, you know, I think there's this myth and I'll say I'm, I'm guilty of perpetuating this sometimes that, you know, cannabis community and cannabis culture is so, you know, peaceful and idyllic and everyone is just, you know, doing great things for humanity. And the reality is that, you know, that's not true. And when, when I saw the response to, to this article and how many people were so bothered by the fact that a woman of color is fighting for more diversity and inclusivity in cannabis, which, you know, we know the history, we've, we've alluded to the history and, and, and people were so taken aback by that and, and were so offended by that. It really made me go, huh, wow. Like this is, there's so much work to do here. Yeah. And so it was a little scary, but also, you know, I guess it's good to get that reality check every once in a while and you know i i guess it, it left me wondering what's my part how do i how do i help here how can i you know support this friend and her work and also just you know help these folks that don't want to see reality get in, a little bit in touch with reality so i don't know right right I mean, Mike, I think it also, you know, um, you, we, we talked uh, earlier that uh, I'm, I'm not a very good promoter of the things that I do. We haven't even talked about any of the events, and I actually am promoting uh, and producing the Cannabis Media Summit for September of this, uh, excuse me, October of this year. This will be our third annual Cannabis Media Summit. And I think the, the other point that I want to make about that that interaction and that that Instagram post is that the, the media publication for which... Uh, you know, that posted this, this article in this interview, uh, it's an old, it's an old publication and it, it, uh, you know, carries with it an audience that looks more like you than it does me, uh, and carries with it some old, some old ways of thinking. Um, and I think for me that, that makes me want to promote and source companies that, care about these issues and have that have different audiences uh you know there there are more than one media companies in the game and you know if that's a company that that has a certain kind of audience that doesn't appeal to me i want to make sure that i'm promoting and buttressing uh, groups that are are supporting the same ideals and, and and that's not hard i mean there are a lot of other groups doing some really great things we don't have to go back to the well uh for which you know we're finding poison Love that. And I'm, I feel inclined and inspired to, to say her name. And I, I want to shout out uh, Mary Pryor, 
from Canaclusive. And, you know, she's been doing great work in this space for years and is as dedicated an activist for cannabis and justice reform as you can meet. You know, I, I feel like all the recognition that she's received has been well-earned and well-deserved. And, you know, and I think that's why, and I'll say their names too, High Times highlighted her because she does great work. And it, it's just so crazy to me that so many people took offense to that and probably didn't even read the article. And yeah, so shout out to Mary Pryor. Mary, you keep up the great work. Fuck the haters. The people who really know, know. And that's all that matters. And I'm sure Mary knows that. And Absolutely. I got to get her on the show. It's long overdue. Yes. But, but that's on me. So <laughs> anyway, Kristen, I want to I wanna ask you, this is my, my favorite question. I, I don't ask everyone this question, but it, I was recently asked and it caught me so off guard. So I want to ask you more as a friend, <laughs> um, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Or, or I'll, and I'll give you the, the, the option to, to skirt that question if you want, you know, and ask you, where do you see the industry in 10 years? Yeah. I mean, I'm excited for the next 10 years because I think that, you know, uh, I think that we will legalize in the next couple of years. Um, you know, every year I say that, and uh, every year I feel very convinced that we're very close to it. Um, but, you know, this COVID world is changing everything. Um, and so I do think that the tri-state area, uh, we're hearing commitments from the governors uh, in, in the tri-state area, and, and we will go as, as a region uh, because of our interconnectedness and the way that we uh, uh, work among, among the three states, uh, Connecticut and, and uh, New Jersey, uh, together with New York. Um, and we see some efforts from the governors to try to you know, line up programs so that the, they can uh, defeat any efforts to uh, uh, traffic in, in um, goods and materials that shouldn't happen across state lines. Um, so in the next couple of years, you know, we're going to see these regulations probably very clunky and uh, not advantageous to a lot of folks roll out. Um, you know, we're seeing Massachusetts, which that has uh, the first statewide social equity program rollout, and you know, painfully, uh, frankly, um, and it hasn't been easy. Um, Illinois, very similarly, has made very great strides and is, um, you know, very um, uh, vocal about its intention to uh, elevate and, and uh, make sure that uh, black ownership is a part of their program. Uh, I think that the tri-state area has made those commitments and, and quite frankly, I, th I think we haven't legalized because we have very strong ally activists in this space who want to make sure that don't do that. Um, so we want to make sure we do it right. And I think there's a lot of um, uh, thinking around, you know, the fact that we've lived under prohibition for this long. If we have to live it a little bit longer in order to get this right, I think we're willing to do that. Um, now, I do a caveat that with some hubris because, you know, you and I are not folks that are impacted by the war on drugs on a regular basis. And, you know, so for us to wait uh, longer is not, not an impact to us. Um, but, you know, making sure that not only are uh, criminalization uh, uh, efforts changed and, and those sorts of uh, laws uh, changed, but also pathways for 
entrepreneurship and, and business ownership um, are lined up also. Which brings me to, um, I'll, I'll try to be a little bit better of a promoter of the Cannabis Media Summit, which is happening on October 16th and 17th virtually. Uh, one of the things that we want to address, so we're, we're, we're uh, the theme for this year is called Pot and Politics, is the idea and the, the troubling um, uh, revelation that the DNC has rolled back its stance on legalization and instead of promoting full legalization of cannabis, we're, all, we're now looking at just decriminalization, which Mike, you know, it doesn't get us anywhere. That doesn't help patients, that doesn't help the industry, and that further feeds into a industry that will only be the big operators. Um, so I think uh, not only does the DNC need to be held accountable for that change in stance, but we need some answers. We need to understand, you know, what what uh, the Democratic Party intends for legalization. Um, and this just really feels like, and, and you know, everything that I'm hearing from uh, Alexandria Casio Cortez is that, you know, this is a real disappointment um, and potentially, um, you know, pushes us backwards rather than forwards. So I think that in the next few years, it's going to be incumbent on the states to really push that needle. And, you know, not for nothing, New York is a state of 20 million people. And we are today the epicenter for finance, for, you know, so much innovation um, and business centric for the U.S. that, you know, if we can get do this right, we could really be the gold standard and we could really be the model for the rest of the state or the rest of the country rather. And I think, I think it's also gonna be interesting for us because you know, thinking about us being a, a state full of 20 million people, right? We live in New York City, eight and a half million people in you know, a few miles of each other, but there are 12 million people who do not think the same way that we do and who do not live and breathe and, and operate in the same way that we do. However, I am constantly reminded that socioeconomically, there are folks who fall into these demographics. And, you know, I hail from Syracuse, New York, and in the Southern Tier, and in places like that, white farmers, uh, frankly, and, and uh, you know, low-income people have been providing uh, medicine and wellness uh, for generations uh, in those areas. And they are not brown and black, typically. Uh, but they also, you know, are persecuted by um, police and, and um, you know, dealing with stigma and all kinds of other issues. So I think there are things that we can all unite around. It's just finding those commonalities, but also acknowledging that as much as, you know, we might uh, find those similarities, that, you know, bias and institutional racism are real and do exist and are things that we need to address. And as uncomfortable as they are, as hard as those conversations are, I think, that job is up for you, for people like you and me to have so that people like Mary don't have to be on the front lines of every single discussion. They, they don't have to have their bodies and literally their bodies on the front line of everything. It's, it's incumbent on us to lead those discussions, especially since a lot of the folks that we're talking to look more like us. I think you're a hundred percent spot on. And personally, I'm very, pessimistic about New York's ability to get things right, especially when I learned this week what's happening with the hemp program. And I just, you know, I've always been a big critic of our medical program. And now that I see what's happening with the hemp program, I, I am even more pessimistic about 
adult use, but who knows, you know, maybe they'll surprise me. Um, Kristen, I want to shift gears into the coaching portion. You know, we only have a few minutes left. So I want to ask you, what is your biggest business challenge or roadblock right now? Yeah, Mike, so I am not a good promoter of myself. I would much rather talk about the work that you're doing or the work that Mary's doing. Uh, And so uh, oftentimes I just forget to to mention the big projects I'm working on. Um, You alluded to the maze calendar. I publish a newsletter in 10 different cities for all of the uh, in-person and now online events that are happening in the cannabis space. Um, We promote events um, that are specifically intended for professionals to understand how to transition your profession into the cannabis space. And, you know, I am just not not a very good promoter. Uh, Those were always side hustles and ways for me to stay engaged and also to provide a stage for my friends and colleagues who I think are much more talented than I. So I could use help with figuring out how to how to be a better promoter of myself and feeling more comfortable in that area. So what about that makes you feel uncomfortable? Oh, I'm just a a little nobody just trying to put things together. You know, I, I, I just, um, you know, I look at the, the giants around me and the folks that have led the way and um, I, I am so privileged and honored to have so many of those folks like Wanda James and Ophelia Chong and uh, Leah Heist and Gia Marone and Shonda Macias, and I, I count them all friends, uh, but uh, certainly they're in a league of their own, and so it's challenging for me to, to sort of um, promote my, my, my side businesses. So this is fun. I'm glad you brought this to me. I'm going to ask you to pretend for a moment that you are one of those ladies that you just mentioned. And I'm curious if, you know, someone asked one of those women about Kristen Jordan, you know, I, I highly, highly disagree that they would say that she's a little nobody. I, I, I just can't imagine that that would be. Well, they're generous people. Well, so put yourself in their shoes for a second and imagine what, what a Gia Marone or, or, or an Ophelia Chung might say about Kristen Jordan. Gosh. Uh, I, I think that they would say that, uh, that one of my strengths is that I, I am very community-minded. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe uh, what I see as a a failing could actually be sort of be turned around into um, a positive in that, you know, I, I never am trying to create a stage for myself. It's always for, um, you know, for me to buttress other, other folks and to provide the, that platform. I'm really good at putting things together. I'm really good at production and, you know, uh, asking people to, to uh, volunteer their time and efforts and for some reason people are generous with me um, that's I think my, my superpower is, is getting folks to jump on a call or, or participate in an event or sponsor but yeah yeah I think that I think that's what they would say is that uh, I am a, a pretty good networker and I um, I've developed some good relationships that I, I uh, call upon on a regular basis I'm- I don't disagree with you, (laughs) but I'm going to challenge you 
because I think you gave me a very business oriented answer. Put yourself in the shoes of one of these great ladies who you named and imagine that they were being asked to promote you and not just Kristen Jordan, the cannabis business lady, but Kristen Jordan, the human being. I'm curious what, what they would say about you and, and your character. Hi. Uh, I think, I think they, they, that they would say that I, um, that I produce. If I, if I commit to something, then I'm going to see it all the way through. And I think that that's something that uh, is challenging in the cannabis space. Uh, you know, there's a lot of starts and stops and, and not, not all, all of those are um, for any, any bad reason. Uh, a lot of reasons things start, start and stop. But I think for me, if I, if I really commit to something, um, I, I will see it through, even if it's painful. <laughs> because what's true about you? I think I'm a very loyal person. I think I'm a person of my word. Yeah, if I if I make a commitment to somebody or to something, uh, it's it's very important for me to to see that through to the end. And I think that's probably why people are generous with me because whenever like I keep a laundry list, I have a a, a list on my phone of um, it's, it's just called follow ups, and it's a rotation and you're on that list of people that I just need to touch base with. And I look at that list periodically uh, when I have calls with other random people. And, you know, if there's connections that I can make um, or uh, help that I can offer. Um, and, and for me, that's because other people did it for me. Um, and, you know, cannabis is a funny place. Uh, there's a lot of folks with their hands out looking for a referral fee. Um, and for me, that just wasn't how I was brought into this space. It was always very generous people who were willing to, give it their time and their effort and uh, it's not made me any money and it's probably not a great business plan, but um, I, I'm in a position where I, where I can do that um, and to, to help to forge those relationships. And I think because of that, that loyalty and that, those ongoing cultivation of, of relationships, um, I've built up some trust and, and folks do uh, respond to that. So I, yes, I think, I think that they would say that I, I am a, a loyal person. I'm a faithful person. I, I try to, to, you know, stand by all of my commitments. Um, and I try to uh, make sure that I'm, we're thinking about things holistically. Like, uh, so for our events, uh, something that uh, my business partner, Annie, and I think about all the time is uh, I, I'm an introvert. I, I, I don't know if you realize that, but what I, what I realize is that um, an introvert is somebody who recharges uh, alone. And so people drain me. So this is draining to me. Uh, I will have to go medicate and not talk to anybody and play my Nintendo switch and, uh, pick up shells on animal crossing for probably two hours. Um, but I know myself now and being a 40 year old woman or 47 year old woman, I, I know what, what it takes to uh, get to where I'm at. And so when I think about attending, um, conferences and you know you've been to them and you know the Javits Center and large-scale things and I just I feel like I'm a little bit lost I'm not that important it doesn't feel like a great space for me so we always try to make sure that we're thinking about that person um, so for instance you know we keep our conferences very small I want to be able to rub to for our guests to rub shoulders with speakers 
Uh, we want our speakers to feel engaged. Uh, we want them to stay all day uh, and, and to attend the other seminars. Um, I also think about the content. You know, when I go to some of these cannabis events, it's really basic level education. And so I find that I'm just socializing with colleagues and it's really not worth the cost of the ticket because the education is just not there. And so we try to make sure, and we work with, I think this is another thing that's unique, is we work with our, um, our educators to really develop a syllabus. Uh, it's super time consuming and it's, it's challenging. And I think that sprang from uh, the first event that we did was the Cannabis Law Summit, uh, which required accreditation. And so we already knew going in that, you know, we had to put together a syllabus. And, you know, when you're asking somebody to volunteer their time, they're not as willing to put that effort in. So we needed to work with all of our speakers to develop the materials. Um, and we wanted it to be, you know, really uh, impactful. And I think one of the greatest compliments that we got at the Law Summit, or the, the Media Summit last year, was that uh, some, we overheard a conversation where somebody said, I tell you, most of these things are Cannabis 101. This is graduate school level. And that was, that felt so wonderful because, you know, we, we give out notebooks. I think we gave you one of our Cannabis Media Summit notebooks. And it's always important to us to make, to, to see people taking notes, to see that they're really getting something uh, out of it. I mean, we have regulators, uh, Commissioner Title from Massachusetts uh, spoke for an hour, but she stayed the, the two full days. Um, and asked questions and was completely engaged. Uh, I believe actually uh, one of her interns, she met uh, going to the bathroom, um, just uh, being in the, the restroom at the same time. And so things like that, those sorts of unique experiences, um, they only happen in a small, um, a small conference and a small interaction and in a small space, frankly. I mean, you know, we think about everything. We think about the size of the space. We think about the types of meals that we're serving. Uh, it's important to us to not put turkey on a roll. We want to make sure that we are, you know, supporting a local mom and pop ethnic food. Uh, so last year at the, the summit, we uh, had uh, Vanessa's Dumplings, a, a Chinese uh, dumpling house here in New York. And you know, there was a little bit of pushback. Oh, not everybody's going to like it. And, you know, everybody has different tastes. And certainly we accommodated. We had gluten-free. We had uh, a vegan food. And, but it was important for us to, you know, showcase uh, ethnic food, as it's always been for me, and to make sure that we're supporting small businesses and restaurants, um, you know, with the small budget that we do have. And so those interactions, those sorts of, of, of you know, quality, um, uh, networking uh, spaces, you know, it, it's a different thing to tell your guests to go out and get a sandwich and meet back in an hour, as opposed to, you know, having everybody sit around and eat family style. Um, those really, those, those go a long way and we hear, we hear some really great feedback. And, and not to knock some of the big conferences, I mean, those are important and they make a whole lot of sense. Um, but for what we're trying to do, it's just a little bit more of a, a, a personal experience. And on the speaker front as well, um, you know, I had the, the, the privilege of being asked to speak uh, at a number of different events over the last few years. And, um, and I take away some of that, those experiences and we try to incorporate, you know, a meaningful experience. I mean, asking somebody to come on their own dime, give up their own time to really prepare in the way that we're asking them to prepare. It's a lot of time and effort. And while you know, appreciate that they're getting a stage and you know, they're, they're, uh, I think cannabis is still in its infancy and that speakers don't really get paid. And that's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people who are expecting to get paid, but you know, we're a startup and this is my side hustle and I'm not a good business person when it comes to it. 
uh, to running that sort of um, uh, the thing for for profit. They're much better business folks um, doing that for profit. But for us, it's just really about you know, getting talent and expertise that uh, doesn't get a stage normally. So those commitments, I, I think, uh, hinder us in that it's it doesn't allow for us to you know think about ticket sales and and uh, really building a business. But I think that was never our goal in the first place. Um, so, yeah. So if I were asked to promote Kristen Jordan, I would say, would say? she's creative, committed, community oriented, and she gets shit done. And above everything else, she does it for the right reasons. And so, so that's what I would offer. And I want to thank you so much, Kristen, for, for taking the time to chat with me today. I'm curious. I want to ask you what was your highlight from our conversation or maybe the best insight or, or moment from, from our chat today. And then I will let you go on your merry way to, to Nintendo Switch and whatever else you need to, to recharge from, from little old me. <laughs> Mike, my favorite thing about today was just catching up with you. I mean, under COVID, we just don't get those opportunities to see each other anymore. And, you know, for six years, I mean, gosh, if I, if I went more than a week without seeing you, that would be unusual. Um, and so I miss my community. I miss uh, passing a joint with you. I miss uh, sitting and, and catching up and hearing stories about our friends and colleagues in the space. I, I miss all of that. I miss hugging you. I miss I miss physical interaction with with all of those people. I mean, those are, you know, for six years, unlike any other industry, real estate or law or anything else I've ever done. I mean, these are you're my family now. This is this is chosen family. This is not just um, uh, uh, community. This is more than that because we've struggled together and we've seen each other struggle and we've seen each other's successes and we've seen, you know, interactions and, and all of this at the end of the day, all of this is hard. I mean, I, this is something that I talk to, you know, a lot with a lot of consultants and, you know, there's a lot of excitement around the space. There's a lot of flashy things that, you know, attract people here, but none of this shit is easy. I mean, you know, it's, it's just, every every bit of this is hard draining exhausting um but it's also the most fulfilling thing that i've ever done in my life amazing well i love that answer and i'm warms my heart and i want to say just as a final parting words a, a little bit of a joke for the folks watching at home even though we might make it look easy sometimes kristen's right it's not easy <laughs> Kristen, this was so much fun. It's a blast as always to catch up and I'm glad that everything is going well and that you're healthy and safe. And I look forward to the day that we can catch up properly in person and pass a yes. joint. And until then, you know, keep rocking and doing great work for the community. Thank you so much for all you do. Thank you, Mike. Have a good day. Take Bye, care. Kristen. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach.